Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. My task is to try to tell you as best I can um, about the, what a stopout play means <laughs> and do that in, 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 in half an hour. A play which um, I gather is causing some puzzlement out there because it is, even by stopout standards, um, well, it's intellectually, it's intellectually challenging and wonderfully so. You may wonder why I am telling you this. The answer is because I, I've known Tom for a little while and, um, and because I had some insight into the process uh, when he was writing the play. We got to know each other a few years ago and, um, and we became friends and when he found out that, was an, that I was an evolutionary biologist, we began talking about many things altruism, evolutionary basis, if any, morality, consciousness, neuroscience, all those things that Tom loves, and also then about the architecture of science, the basic stuff of how scientists walk and talk and what they do in their daily lives. And over the last two years, you know, I would get texts from Tom at the most, at all hours, asking all sorts of questions. And sometimes they'd be easy questions such as how would a PhD student address his or her supervisor? Would you call a doctor, a professor, or just by his first name? Well, that's pretty simple. You call him by a first name. You know, it's fine. And then he'd ask, and then the next text would be something like, do you think that consciousness is more likely to be simulated in quantum rather than classical computers? Uh, well, I mean, what I know about, I know less than Wikipedia about quantum computing, and, but fortunately I work at Imperial College and you can be sure there's a professor of quantum computing, and I was able to bung that one over to him. I, I want to stress, however, that I was merely a sounding board for, for Tom over the last two years. This play is his intellectual construction from what he's thought about. So deeply, uh, and he's talked to many people. I, I say that in, um, simply in order to stress that, that what I'm going to tell you to tonight is um, I'm going to give you an account of what I think the play is about, what I think are the important issues, but this is just one man's version of it and it is not by no means necessarily the authoritative version. It is not even necessarily Tom's version. I'm not even sure he quite knows what version it is. But it is at least my attempt to make sense of the intellectual narrative that runs through this play. What this play is about, at its heart, I believe, is that it asks the question, what is it to be good? Or perhaps, what is goodness? There are, we can distinguish, two main views about the nature of goodness in the philosophy of goodness. We can call them the absolute and the relativist view. The view that, good, that the good or what is good behavior is that there's some absolute value that, uh, or, or formula that can be given for it. And the other is that it's, well, it's just different strokes for different folks. It's relative. And I think if we ask ourselves what is goodness, we tend to flip-flop naturally between 
absolutist and relativist views. Just think of any moral, moral question that, that you may have. These two traditions are ancient. Certainly the absolutist one. It begins with Socrates, I think. Socrates was interested as a young man in natural philosophy, but he discovered that the natural philosophers were all confused and they didn't agree with each other. So he did, in Cicero's words, he called philosophy down from the heavens, from the study of the natural phenomenon, from the stars, and brought it in among families and, and, and to cities and among people. In other words, he began the tradition of moral philosophy. That in his students' hands, Plato became developed into a complete absolutist philosophy of morality and ethics. And ever since then, moral philosophers have been searching for a formula, a device, a system by which we can rationally decide what is right and what is wrong. This is what Kant attempted with his categorical imperative. It is what the utilitarians such as Bentham and John Stuart Mill tried with their principle of maximum utility. It is the same thing that John Rawls tries, even in this day, with his veil of ignorance. And all of these systems have this in common, I think. I speak broadly here. We can't have, I can't give you a lecture on 2,000 years of moral philosophy, which I'm not equipped to give anyway. But they have this much in common, that they tend to be rather bloodless. They tend to assume that we are all equivalent sort of actors and that the thing to do is to decide how how society as a whole should be organized in the best possible way. But there's another tradition. It is, shall we call it, the relativist or naturalist tradition. It is the tradition that asks, that begins with the, the, the principle that we are all individuals with our own particular desires and needs. We want, we want to life. We want to love, we want to have children, we want our children to have children, we want to be happy. And as such, we care about ourselves, not so much other people. We are selfish. That is the tradition which mo motivates Hobbes, for example, in which he begins with this notion that we are all brutish and self-interested. And his question then is, how do you get cooperation? How does society not fall apart? And his answer is Leviathan, the state. If we're not going to be chewing each other up all the time, you need a strong state to keep us under control. David Hume gave a somewhat different explanation. He said something along the lines of, the reason why we are not relentlessly brutish to each other, cruel to each other, selfish, it's because we cooperate with each other in the hope that other people will cooperate with us. We reward our friends for helping us and we give them, we cooperate with them in return. That is an important idea because in the 20th century, in the middle of the 20th century, I would argue we began to see the first rational theory of morality based upon Hume's insight and it was, it was given to us by game theory. Game theory is a mathematical branch of mathematics which is concerned with the resolution of contests. It says you have a bunch of strategic actors who are working against each other and the question is what should they do? And the classic example is the prisoner's dilemma. To really outline the prisoner's dilemma, I'd need some 
all the stuff that scientists need, which is blackboards and overheads, at least something. But let me just try to give you a feel for how it works. Basically, the issue is this. You've got two prisoners. They're each in a cell by themselves. They've each been accused of, of a crime, of cooperating in a crime. And the question is, how should they plead? If they, if they both deny their innocence, the cops don't have anything on them, and they'll get away, or with maybe just a censure. But if they blame each other, they can, if, if one of them blames the other, the blamer will get off, but the blamee will uh, get, get nailed. And so the question is, what should you do under those circumstances? It's a little bit more complicated than that, but that you get the idea. And the important point is that neither of the prisoners know what the other prisoner is going to do. They're ignorant of each other, so they've got to make a decision. And it turns out that the decision that they make under those circumstances, the best decision that they make is to strike, is to blame the other, even though they'd both be better off if they cooperated and just both stayed silent, but they don't know that the other one is going to be silent. So given that ignorance, you strike. That is the so-called paradox of the prisoner's dilemma. And that solution is what is known as the Nash equilibrium for John Nash, John Beautiful Mind Nash. That is the thing that he discovered. You will remember the film. Game theory obliterated metaphysics. It showed us that you could actually calculate strategies rather than attempt as individuals. But it still raises the question of how do you get cooperation then in the prisoner's dilemma? And this is where the evolutionary biologists came in because they quickly adopted game theory, came out of Cold War strategy, but the evolutionary biologists took it over. And, and they saw it as a way of explaining why creatures, when they engage in contests with each other, don't inevitably slaughter each other. And the solution that they came up with was this. It turns out that if you play the prisoner's dilemma repeatedly against each other, as opposed to just once. So you play it once, and then you remember who you can play it against, and you play it again, and then play it again. Then it turns out that the best strategy is no longer to nuke each other. The best strategy is to be nice, to be, keep on being nice until somebody else is nasty, your opponent is nasty, and then you're nasty back. But if they're nasty and then they turn nice again, you should forgive them. This is called the tit-for-tat strategy. And it turns out in repeated prisoner's dilemma games to be the best strategy, the so-called Nash equilibrium. And it turns out to be the way in which animals often play their contests. So, for example, in the Amazon, vampire bats, and you'll see this in the play, vampire bats engage in this reciprocal altruism. They a vampire bat goes out and has a blood meal, you know, chows on down on some cow and comes back. But not all the vampire bats are lucky. So the, the lucky vampire bats share their food with the unlucky vampire bats by actually regurgitating the blood into their mouths. Well, that's all very fine and well. But of course, you only want to do that if when you turn unlucky, somebody else is going to regurgitate into your mouth. Right? And it turns out that vampire bats remember who is good to them and they will keep on playing nice until somebody turns nasty and then they defect and they'll they play these reciprocal altruism games and humans do too i mean we play this in the many small contests that we play throughout our lives but but we can give graphic examples on the western front 
during the First World War. Sni British and German snipers would often come to an unspoken truce. They couldn't talk to each other, but they came to an unspoken truce, not to nail each other until one of them defected. And indeed, it was called the live and let live strategy. It's been studied by sociologists. And, and they have been, it was the bane of the high command who had continually had to move their snipers around so that they could break these unspoken truces. We do it, it's probably, it is certainly a wired and instinct into us, this fairness algorithm, as it were. Chimpanzees do it too. It's not the only explanation for altruism, or at least there are other complications in altruism, which evolutionary biologists have given us. Evolutionary biologists showed that there are some kinds of altruism which are especially easy to evolve. And one of them is when we're related to people. So for example, why do we love, who do we love? And the answer is, well, we love the people we're related to. Why do we love them? It seems like a silly kinds of, silly kinds of question, but it's the sort of question that evolutionary biologists wonder about. And the answer is that it was given by Hamilton in the 1960s, that we were good to the people that we're related to because they share our genes. And because it turns out that it's genes that are natural selection maximizes the fitness of genes, not individuals. This sounds a little bit paradoxical, but it explains why mothers, fathers, love their children. And it explains other more disturbing phenomena. So for example, we know that if a child is abused or dies, is killed, it's usually the parents who do it. And we also know that the probability that it's going to be a step-parent rather than a biological parent is tenfold higher. That's predicted by, the, by Hamilton's theory, but by no other. So you may object. Well, most step-parents love their children. They don't suffer from the so-called Cinderella effect. And that's true. These are probabilities, risks, and the small risks. And you may wonder too, well, isn't this all there is in explaining human behavior? Surely there are many kinds of human behavior that aren't explicable in these evolutionary terms. Somebody wrote to me just a few days ago, apropos of the play, and, and said, what about Captain Oates? You remember him. He walked out into the Antarctic blizzard in order to save his fellows, Scott and company, who he would no longer be a dragon with those quintessentially British words, I may be a while. Why did you do it? But there's many other kinds of heroism. In your program notes, you'll see a, an exchange between Dawkins and Stoppard. And Dawkins says, well, Stoppard challenges him on these things. And Dawkins says, well, it's just misfires. It's mistakes. Places where our evolutionary algorithms aren't working. And I think that's sort of right. But I think it's a bit of an inadequate explanation. I think there's a deeper explanation. And to try to demonstrate what I think that explanation is, I want to play a little game. Could I have the house lights up, please? Because you are going to participate. I would like all the gentlemen, all the men to stand, not the women. It's only the men who are going to play this game. <laughs> gentlemen, the game that we are going to play is called Titanic. <laughs> the date is 15th April. 1912. It is the early hours. The ship has struck. And the women aren't playing this game because they're safe in the lifeboats. 
and the lifeboats are full. All the women and children have been saved, but none of you are going to be saved. And the question is, what are you going to do? I'm going to ask you to make a decision. You see, if you are rational, it's very clear what you should do. You are bigger and stronger than any woman. You should go over to the lifeboat, turf one of them out, and take their place. And let's be clear, that is the rational thing to do, because you know that you will die. There's no choice about it. The irrational thing to do, of course, is to just stand there and not do anything. And my question to you is, what are you going to do? And I'm going to, uh, before I ask for your re reply, let me just add one more thing. That if you turf a woman out of the boat and take her place, you will be labeled a coward. But if you die, you will be remembered as a hero, and much good may it do you. <laughs> I would like all the men who are going to be irrational heroes to sit now, and I would like the rational cowards to remain standing so that we can take a good look at you. <laughs> One, two, three. Gentlemen, congratulations. <laughs> I won't ask why you stood, why, but you can see my point. You may wonder, what is it about this? Where is it inscribed that British men, especially, should, should stand, should die when the cry women and children goes up. There's no law, there's no stone tablet, there's no code of Britishness where this is written down somewhere. And the answer is that this is, I believe, I believe the answer is that it's a folk memory. And it's a folk memory that you've actually, most of you probably have even forgotten about. And it goes back to 1852, when a ship called the HMS Birkenhead struck off the coast of South Africa. It was a troop carrier carrying some 650 British soldiers to go fight in the Eighth Corso War. The, there were too few lifeboats. There weren't, weren't any at all, but there were some women and children aboard, officers, wives, and they were saved. They were put into the lifeboats. But for the rest of the men, there were nothing. There was nothing. There was no hope of saving. And so the officers lined up the men on the deck, fearing that they would rush the boats, and told them to stand, gave the command, and the drummer boy drummed. And they stood there and went to their deaths. About 100 of the 650 survived. The rest mostly were eaten by sharks. This is off the coast of South Africa. It was one of the great set pieces of Victorian heroism. I grew up in South Africa when I was a boy, so I learned about this stuff in a way that many of you will have, have not. We still were quite big on the empire back in those days <laughs> and its heroes. It became a byword. Kipling wrote a poem about this, of course, you know, something like the couplet, to stand and be still with the Birkenhead drill, that's a damn hard bullet to chew. But it was because of the Birkenhead, which was still fresh in the memory of people, the men of the Titanic, that when the cry, women and children went up, and it was the Birkenhead was the first time, they knew what to do. And the risk of death of a man in the, in the, in, in the dying in the Titanic disaster was approximately fivefold higher than that of any woman. 
And it is why you, gentlemen, most of you, <laughs> chose to die futilely, irrationally as well. These are the kinds of explanations that scientists give for the behavior that we do. There's no reference to moral value. So let me just come back to the hard question, the hard problem. The hard problem is a puzzle. It's an interlocked discussion between all of the actors, Bo, Jerry, Leo, all of them. But at its heart lies an argument between two of the characters, Hillary and Spike. I won't, if you haven't seen the play yet, I won't, I'll, I'll try not to give any of it away. But let me just say this, that it is, Spike, you'll discover, is a scientist. He's a rationalist. He knows the explanations, the kinds of explanations that I've given. He's got it all down pat. Hillary, she's a scientist too. She's a student, his student, and his lover. Mm, bad spike. <laughs> and although she's a scientist, she comes to science a moral absolutist. She's got the whole Kantian package, God, duty, goodness, as a fundamental value. And that package over the course of the play, comes under assault. She's an 18th century moralist in a 21st century neuroscience institute. She is a comet coming in from out of space and skirting the corona of a mighty star fueled by the fusion of science, technology, and money. And it is a miracle that she isn't just incinerated. But the reason she isn't is because she has a defense, a heat shield, an argument. Whatever Spike throws at her, whatever Spike says, Evo Devo can just explain this. It's just game theory. Scratch an altruist, see a hypocrite bleed. She can reply, science can't explain everything. And Spike says, what? I'm not quoting here the dialogue, but in effect, he says, what? And she says, explain this. Consciousness, my sense of being, 87, all those billions of neurons, trillions of connections, explain them, how they give that sense of being, of awareness. Spike has to say, I can't. But we will. But you can't. And she... She goes further than that. She not only says that we haven't explained consciousness, she says you can't explain consciousness. There's something about consciousness that is inherently inexplicable. And in that defense, she's prepared to go right to metaphysical bedrock because she denies that the mind and everything that operates, the, 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 the stuff in our head, the action in our head, that sense of being, even has a material basis. All scientists agree that the world begins, that if we want to explain the world, we have to begin with a fundamental premise that the physical structure of the world, those particles, those atoms, those things which are being discovered in the LHC in Geneva, that that is the fundamental structure of the world and that's all there is. Hillary denies that. She says, 
that the mind is fundamentally immaterial. She is prepared to go to any degree of metaphysical extremism in the defense of liberty, free will. I have to say that I don't get Hillary at all. <laughs> so, Spike? Yeah, I understand Spike. I know exactly what he's talking about. Hillary, she's just doing something completely different. But it's worthwhile pointing out, for what it's worth, that she does have some distinguished philosophers on her side. <laughs> and, and Tom knows them. It is this argument. I, 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 I don't want to bias you in the outcome of this argument. But what I want to point out is what Stoppard is doing. He's beginning with a, a question about what is goodness, showing how it operates in the plot among these people and then runs their argument right down to metaphysical bedrock in a way that only Stoppard can, can do. And you may say, well, what is the answer that he gives? What side does he come down on? And here's the thing, because he is Stoppard, he doesn't tell you. <laughs> He's, he asks the question, he sets out the alternative, alternatives, and he then asks you to take the answer that you need in order to make sense of yourselves as moral beings and show you the deep implications of that. And it is precisely that why I believe that at this time, in this day, when we are beginning to work out the rational basis of morality, where we are beginning to unravel the brain, where we hear in the distance, like thunder, the sound of approaching AIs. Now, it is because of all that that I think this play will be seen to be, by future generations, one of the most philosophically important of its time. And which is why I have been I count myself deeply privileged to have seen something of its construction and why I think we are all privileged to be seeing it in its first production here at the National Theatre. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you.